You may open the Word of God to John chapter 20. The Gospel of John chapter 20. And let's remind ourselves why John wrote. So that we will focus, as we should, on John chapter 2 in a moment. John chapter 20, verse 30. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through His name. There are two things I want to notice from these verses this morning. These are written. Whatever is written in the Gospel of John may not have been written in the other Gospels. It's written for us to believe that Jesus of Nazareth was truly God's Son, the Christ and Messiah of Israel. So when we come to John 2 and verse 12, and it says, after this they went down to Capernaum, and you think with me, what is this verse here for? I believe that it is there by the inspiration of God, by the preservation of God, by God moving the Apostle John to write it as further evidence that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Even an obscure verse like John 2.12, which we'll come to in a moment. That's the first thing I want you to notice from these verses. The Holy Spirit was very selective in giving John certain things to write down. Jesus truly did many other things. But the Gospel of John has those carefully selected by God for us. Solomon wrote 3,000 Proverbs. 1 Kings 4 tells us that. We only have 500 in our Bibles. God called the list of 3,000 to give us His favorite 500. God called all the acts and of Jesus Christ to give us His favorites in the Gospel accounts. Second thing we want is the word believe. If you want to lay hold of eternal life today, we lay hold of eternal life by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But that belief is not mere intellectual assent. That belief is a life-changing commitment of love and devotion to Jesus Christ. We are going to learn, if God will be merciful to us today, that mere intellectual assent is not belief. Jesus will not commit Himself to you, and you are not saved. It's more than that. It is a life-changing effect. Faith without works is dead. The Reformed like to speak of saving faith. I don't like that terminology because James asked a rhetorical question, can faith save? The answer is no, because faith without works is dead. The devils believe and tremble, but it doesn't save them. It's a life-changing belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. I love Galatians 5, 6 that tells us that the crucial element with God 
is faith that worketh by love. That's the expression. It's not just some little momentary decision that people make. That's an invention of the past couple hundred years. Invented by Charles Finney and furthered by others after him. No one in the Bible ever asked anyone for a decision. They asked them for their lives. Jesus said, count up the cost if you're willing to forsake your whole life to follow me. If you are not willing, you are not worthy to be my disciple. So let's lay hold of that belief because this is why John wrote, and I exhort you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today and to let it change your life. Now look at me, look with me please at Nehemiah chapter 8. Back to the book of Nehemiah where we were to open this assembly and the 8th chapter. After this he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brethren and his disciples and they continued there not many days. This is the word of God. I believe it. I'm going to preach it to you. I listened last evening as part of my devotions with my wife to a sermon from the pastor of the fastest growing mega church in Atlanta. And it was incredibly discouraging and angering to listen to such drivel and twaddle coming from a platform. The name of Jesus was never mentioned. Christ was never mentioned. Salvation was never mentioned. Grace and mercy was never mentioned. And when sin was mentioned, the word sin, it was apologized for. But there's tens of thousands that want to hear that drivel. So I said, Lord, all I've got is to preach the word. It's all I know how to do. I don't know how to entertain carnally minded, unregenerate reprobates and make them all happy with their Starbucks and flip-flops in the name of Jesus. I don't know how to do that. All I know how to do is preach your word and look at the verse you've given me to start out with. After this, he went down to Capernaum. But I want to remind you what Bible preaching is. Because I'm reminding myself. So just for a moment, you're hearing me remind myself, as I've done for the last 12 hours, a number of times through the night. Nehemiah 8 and verse 8. This is Bible preaching. Nehemiah 8 has the greatest preaching service with the most detail in the Bible. So they read in the book, in the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. That is Bible preaching. They read, ministers are supposed to read God's book distinctly, and give the sense of the words and cause people to understand God's book. My job description in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2 is three words long. Preach the word. John 2. Let's go for it. We thank thee, Lord of heaven and earth, for your precious word, the Bible. 
We thank Thee for the gift of Thy presence with us, the Holy Spirit. And we pray that Thy Holy Spirit will rightly divide these verses to us, that we might know the perfect will of God. And we know that that will this morning is for us to see the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and our only Savior. John chapter 2. I'll not read the passage. I'll just read the verse that we want to start with. Verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. After this, meaning after turning the water to wine in Cana of Galilee. Cana is a number of miles west of Capernaum and up in the mountains. So when it says they went down, it didn't mean they went down south as we tend to think. Those words in the Bible are never intended to mean they went south. They're always meaning they went down in altitude because Capernaum was a seaport on the Sea of Galilee. It would be at sea level. And Cana was up in the mountains of western Galilee, which if we had the time, we could look at Bible maps or things like that, but it's not important. After this, he went down to Capernaum. There is much in the Bible about the city of Capernaum. This is our Lord's first place of residence after leaving Nazareth. Jesus lived in Capernaum. Historical evidence by the small amount of desolate buildings still there, estimate the population at only 1,500 people or so. A small town in our estimation. But it's where Jesus lived after Nazareth. It's there where he healed the centurion's servant. When the centurion said, you don't need to come and visit my house. Just speak the word. I'm a man of authority. I'm under authority. I have men under me. And I tell them to go here and go there, and they do it. You can just speak the word. And Jesus said, I haven't found so great faith in all of Israel. Because that centurion believed in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was at Capernaum that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. When I use the words Peter's mother-in-law, what does that mean about Peter? Peter was married. Peter had a wife. But there's a church in Rome that claims that celibacy is necessary and required. One of the great heresies of the, of the 20th, the 2000 years since the apostles, that priests should be celibate. And thus, all of their sexual abuse of children, their sodomy, the Catholic Church admits freely that over 50% of their priests are very active sexually. With many of those being pedophiles going after children and others sodomites. Why? Because they refused the word of God that said one of the first qualifications of a minister is he's the husband of one wife. First Timothy chapter 3. And Peter, whom they claim is their first pope, had a wife because Jesus healed that wife's mother. In Capernaum. It was at Capernaum where Jesus called it his own city. 
The Holy Spirit calls Capernaum his own city in Matthew chapter 9. Here's where the paralytic was lowered to Jesus through the roof. Here's where he called Matthew from the seat of taxation to follow him. It's where the Jewish tribute collectors confronted Peter about whether Jesus paid tribute or not. It was where Jesus preached the great sermon that we're going to get to in John chapter 6. Many things in the gospel took place at Capernaum. More on that city in a moment. He and his mother and his brethren. Jesus had brothers and sisters. The Catholic Church also maintains, as I taught you last Lord's Day, that Mary was a perpetual virgin. The great whore, that's the name of the Catholic Church, the mother church of all the abominations in Christianity and of harlot churches that came out of Rome. Baptists never came out of Rome. John the Baptist wasn't part of Rome. Jesus was a Baptist because he was baptized by a Baptist. If you're baptized by a Baptist preacher, then you're a Baptist. Jesus was a Baptist. Mary was a Baptist. The apostles were Baptists. They never came out of Rome. The Baptists were never part of Rome. There were always little churches holding to the faith of God's elect, following the apostolic due order throughout Europe. Hid in the mountains of Wales, they were a thousand preachers, meant Augustine when he visited there in 597 A.D. out of the mountains of Wales. They emigrated to the United States. Whole churches emigrated. There were churches in Pennsylvania and Delaware called Welsh Tract Baptist Churches. Out of the mountainous region west of London where the persecutors could not reach them. Perpetual virginity. If Mary was a perpetual virgin, she was one of the greatest sinners to ever get to heaven. Because the Bible condemns defrauding your husband from your marital rights. It's called due benevolence in 1 Corinthians 7. She would not have defrauded him any longer than the Bible says that they refrained from having intimate relations, and that was until she brought forth her firstborn son. Because she had many other sons. Those four sons are named for us in the New Testament. And he had plural sisters, at least two or more. So the Catholics are wrong. It says he and his mother and his brethren. These brethren moved with him to Capernaum, though they did not believe on him. Jesus' siblings did not believe on him until after his resurrection. We're going to learn that in John chapter 7. They didn't believe on him yet. But after he rose from the dead, because they saw him die and knew that he had died, and to see him after he rose from the dead, they believed. And his disciples, there's only five at this point in time because we're still very early, and we met the five, or at least a minimum of five, in John chapter 1. And they continued there not many days. Is there a lesson in this simple verse of narrative where Jesus spent some time. How great was the blessing on this planet for Jesus of Nazareth to visit the city of Capernaum for not many days? What if He only came for a half a day? Is that an unspeakable blessing? 
It is an incredible blessing to have the Lord Jesus Christ there. But not just a half a day, not just a day, not just these not many days, because He returned to this city repeatedly. But look at the judgment that's going to come on Capernaum because they didn't fully appreciate the visit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me at Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. And let us take a lesson for ourselves. The Bible tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ walks among His golden candlesticks. His golden candlesticks are His churches. In Revelation chapters 1 through 3, it is described as seven golden candlesticks because there are seven churches in the context there, the seven churches of Asia. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus, by His Spirit, is in this room with this assembly. He has visited this Capernaum. What effect will it have on you today? Today! A few hours with the Lord. I understand fully that a New Testament church is always the church, whether in its assembly or not. But it's in His assemblies where He comes and meets with us in a different way. A more pronounced way. Matthew 11, verse 23. And thou, Capernaum, Jesus is speaking. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shalt be brought down to hell. This is Jesus preaching. This is what preaching should sound like. Hell, fire, and brimstone. Jesus preaching. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shalt be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you, that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. For those that don't believe in eternal punishment, the fastest growing trend the fastest growing heresy in Christianity today is that there is no hell. Sodom had been burned up 2,000 years before Jesus spoke these words. Why is He speaking of Sodom still facing a day of judgment? In the future tense. But it was going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah Because they never had a visit by the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? Do you understand that it would be more tolerable for you in the day of judgment if you hadn't come today? We have come to this place in this assembly. And the Lord Jesus Christ is here among us by His Spirit. We cannot see Him. But the Bible tells us He is here, which is more valuable and important and certain in its evidence and proof than if we could see Him with the two bags of fluid hanging in your sockets. What is Capernaum like today? It was abandoned a thousand years ago. It's nothing but mounds 
of rubbish and ruins of a synagogue that was there. Enough of it left to know that there was a synagogue in Capernaum. Do you understand why there's a few ruins left? Because Jesus preached in that synagogue. Do you understand the greater burden due to hearing the truth? When we hear the truth, there's a greater burden upon us to obey the truth. The Lord Jesus is visiting us. What will you do with Him? Will you lay hold of Him by faith and give Him your soul, your life, your mind, your thoughts, your dreams, your money, your time, your everything? They went down to Capernaum. What disgust do you have considering their rejection of Jesus among them? With the fabulous miracles that were done in Capernaum, what disgust do you have for those Christ rejectors? They had the Word of God promising them Christ would come. They had Him living in their little tiny town of 1,500 souls. Are you disgusted? Be careful. Are you disgusted with their rejection of Him? We are in our flesh. We are in our flesh. We're like David when he was told about the farmer with the little ewe lamb and how it was stolen by the rich farmer. And David said the rich farmer should be killed and the lamb should be restored fourfold. What has Jesus Christ done in your life as evidenced by your activity in the last 24 hours? Don't tell me about a year ago. He doesn't care and I don't care. And the Word of God doesn't care. Are we like Capernaum? Lord, help us. What disgust should you have for sitting in a church of Jesus Christ that He visits and dozing? Should you be as disgusted with yourself as we tend to be with those inhabitants of Capernaum? Lord, have mercy upon us. John chapter 2. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. But they came back to that city, and you just heard God's judgment on that city. Let there be no judgment on you or your family or this church because of our neglect of the one who stands among us right now. All I know how to do is preach the word. I don't have any stories to tell you. Verse 13. And the Jews' Passover was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Notice now he went up. But he went directly south. But he went up. Because Jerusalem was up in the mountains again because it was on Mount Zion. And the temple was built on Mount Moriah. The seven mountains upon which Jerusalem rests in its entirety. So they went up from sea level at Galilee. Very minor point. If it's noted in the Word of God, it's major enough for me to tell you. And the Jews' Passover was at hand. The history, the reason, and the details of keeping the Passover are in a 51-verse chapter of the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 12 gives us all 
the details of the Passover. You want to remember that a death angel of God went through Egypt one night and killed the firstborn in every family. But the families of the Jews, the Israelites, had taken a lamb kept up for three days that was less than one year old, shed its blood in a basin, and spread that blood over their doorway. And when the death angel came through and saw the blood, the death angel would pass over that house. And we're going to stand before God very soon. And the penalty will not be our firstborn being killed. The penalty will be eternal fire in the lake of fire. But when God sees the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ applied to us because our names are in the Lamb's book of life, He will pass over us. It was God's requirement for Passover observance in Jerusalem. The males of Israel, three times a year, for the great three festivals of Israel, were to appear in the city where God had chosen to be particularly worshipped. Jesus worshipped God as a Jew because He was a Jew. And He was born under the law. He was born under the law of Moses, so He observed the feasts of Moses because He was an Old Testament believer. But He was part of the transition team. The transition team was John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles for a 40-year period of time that the New Testament calls the time of Reformation. We don't look to the Reformation of the 16th century. It means hardly anything to us. Because all that happened were some Catholics became somewhat less Catholics. Martin Luther was still a Catholic in many respects. John Calvin was still a Catholic in many respects. The Baptist churches had existed before them, during them, and after them. Baptist churches were persecuted by both men. The Reformation that counts, and these are Bible words, the time of Reformation is from 30 A.D. to 70 A.D. From the death of Jesus and His return to heaven and the destruction of Jerusalem. During that 30-year period of time, John, Jesus, and the apostles changed the worship of God from the Old Testament to the New Testament. They did not do it in one day. They did it over a period of 40, 43 years. Called the time of Reformation. The Bible puts it in terms like, the time of Reformation is Hebrews 9.10. That the Old Testament was imposed on the Jews until the time of Reformation. Luke 16.16 says the law and the prophets, that's the Old Testament, were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. But there were only some Jews pressing into the kingdom under John the Baptist. During that 40-year time period, Jesus kept up the law of Moses. Jesus taught in Matthew 23 that the Jews ought to submit to the Pharisees because the Pharisees sat in Moses' seat. He's still upholding the Old Testament religion, while he's introducing the New Testament religion because the two ran side by side for 40 years. The Apostle Paul was willing with the direction and suggestion of James 
at the church in Jerusalem as late as Acts chapters 20 through 22 to take a Jewish vow upon himself and to go into the temple and offer Old Testament sacrifices because the two covenants were running side by side. Paul would circumcise Timothy, but he wouldn't circumcise Titus, showing that depending on his audience, he would keep more or less of the law of Moses as it went out of existence, and Christianity became the way of worshiping God. This issue that I'm talking about right now separates Jesus from how we worship God, because we're not Jews, and we weren't born under the law of Moses. So on our website is a document called Jesus or Paul. We are Pauline Christians because we're not Jews. We're not under the law. And the law was completely obliterated in 70 AD when that temple was torn to the ground. And the priesthood and sacrificial system and the altar of God and the veil, the holy of holies, all of that disappeared. Paul said, be ye followers of me as I am a follower of Christ. We're Gentiles, so we follow Paul as he followed Christ because Paul showed us how Gentiles, under New Testament Christianity only, without two systems running side by side, were to follow Jesus. We're Christians because we're following Jesus. But we're following Jesus by the men he appointed for Gentiles. And the greatest of those men was Paul. Paul said, I magnify my office. I am the apostle to the Gentiles. Jesus went to how many Passovers? Think think with me. Here's what we assume from the Bible. And when I say assume from the Bible, it's very sure. We assume from the Bible that the ministry of Jesus Christ was three and a half years long. That's taught to us in one place. Daniel chapter 9 that says there would be 69 weeks of years, or 483 years, until Jesus was anointed. When was Jesus anointed? At his baptism. In the midst of the 70th week, Jesus would be cut off and end the sacrificial system. If we're talking about a week of seven years, and Jesus died in the midst of it, how long was his ministry? Three and a half years. If you die at a Passover, how many Passovers occurred during your ministry of three and a half years? Four. Death, back up a year. Number two, back up a year. Number three, back up a year. Number four, and six months before that, you were baptized. I know I'd I'd love to have a, a giant video building committee. I would love to have a giant monitor up here with a timeline for you. Jesus went to four Passovers. John tells us about three of them very carefully, this being the first, and hence at number four. But we know he had four because of the three and a half years of Daniel chapter 9. Jesus was used to going to the Passover. Look at Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And verse 41, this is nice to know about Jesus' upbringing. Luke 2.41, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. The Bible tells us that. 
So Jesus was in a habit of doing what he's doing in John chapter 2 and verse 13. And that verse, And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He is now 26 weeks into his ministry. That half year that led up to his first Passover. Six weeks in the wilderness, being tempted of the devil. And weeks around it that we don't know how long. And the not many days at Capernaum, we don't know how long. But we know that Capernaum was 85 miles. The Sea of Galilee on the south side is 70 miles, as I've told you in the last couple of weeks. Jerusalem's 85 miles from Capernaum. Even a fast trip would have been two days by foot. We come to verse 14. Jesus has come to Jerusalem where the Jews worshipped and where the center of religion of Jehovah was on this earth. Verse 14, And found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence. Make not my father's house an house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. And that's a quotation from Psalm 69 and verse 8 or 9. He found in the temple... The center of Jewish worship from David to Jesus Christ was Jerusalem's temple. This was the second of two temples. There were two temples built. The first was paid for by David and built by Solomon. It was torn down by Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonian because of their the Jews' disobedience. They were taken captive into Babylon for 70 years. They returned under Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was the captain in charge of the building. And Nehemiah was an assistant for rebuilding that temple, which was called the second temple, or in Bible terminology, it's the former temple being Solomon's, the latter temple being Zerubbabel's. Zerubbabel's was added on to significantly by Herod the Great, which we'll comment on in a few minutes in a verse that comes up shortly. Herod was an Edomite. Herod was a descendant of Esau. Herod the Great. The Jews did not like having Herod the king being an Edomite over them. So Herod, to win the affection of the people, began a massive building project to add to the temple of Zerubbabel in 19 B.C. 16 years before Jesus was born. Don't worry about the difference between zero in the B.C. A.D. That's an error in our calendars that everyone knows about even though in general terms, B.C. and A.D. still means in reference to Jesus Christ, but it's off by a few years because of the calculations that were made before they had the historical information that we have today. It's an irrelevant point. He found in the temple a bunch of merchandising going on, a bunch of selling. The house of prayer had become a flea market 
Animals. Do you know what kind of mess animals make? Do you know what kind of crazy sound animals make? Have you ever read about Solomon dedicating his temple, what it would have been like? But here there's all these animals. Do you know what doves leave everywhere? Mark your calendars. He found in the temple sellers of oxen and sheep and doves and money changers. You needed a half shekel. There was an annual poll tax on every person and you needed a half shekel so there were money changers there to make sure that you got your half shekel. And because Jesus called them thieves, we're just going to go ahead and say they were skimming. Because in the other gospel accounts of the second cleansing, this is the first cleansing. The other gospel accounts don't tell us about this cleansing. The other three gospel accounts have a cleansing of the temple that sounds almost identical to this one. But it's three years later. It's at the conclusion of his ministry. Because it's at the conclusion of those three gospels. And you know how precise John has been to tell us that we are at the front end of Jesus' ministry. We've still got John the Baptist on the loose in John chapter 3. This is very early in Jesus' ministry, and I want to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. If you think Nehemiah was great, the Lord Jesus opened his ministry by cleansing the temple, and he closed his ministry by cleansing the temple. He was dedicated, and the zeal of God's house ate him up, and I want it to eat you up. That the house of God, the place where God, we don't care about the building, we don't care about the roof, the wall, the ceilings, the floor. The place where we assemble and worship God according to New Testament order, I want the zeal for it to eat you up. For you to be consumed in passion to be with the people of God and to worship His Son, Jesus Christ, according to His order. Two such events add more glory and weight to the Lord Jesus Christ, don't they? Don't you appreciate knowing that? That there were two events at the opening and the conclusion of His ministry. At both events, He showed His great regard and zeal for the true worship of God. Like He preached in the Sermon on the Mount, He wanted to restore and reform pure worship to God. Worship that is not in truth is unacceptable to God. If there's an error, it's unacceptable to God. Jesus is going to tell the woman of Samaria in John chapter 4, the Father seeks those that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And He said, woman, you don't have a clue what you guys worship in Samaria. That's what He said. Go read it. John 4 verses 20 through 24. And then He said, we have true worship in Jerusalem, but it's being changed. Nobody worships in Jerusalem anymore. There's no, Jerusalem that's over there in the Middle East doesn't mean a thing to the God of heaven. There's a whole new Jerusalem. Galatians chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 12, Revelation chapters 21 and 22, there's a heavenly Jerusalem. There's, it's not on earth anymore. It's in heaven. And the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, is sitting on the throne of that city. And found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords. A scourge. It's a whip or a lash. You know, in English language, we call it sometimes a cat of nine tails. Because it was a wooden handle. 
with nine thongs coming off of it. So it was called Cat of Nine Tails. A wooden handle like a baseball bat, about 12 to 18 inches long, with nine thongs coming off it. With that in your hand, not a, not a thong, but a wooden handle, you could flay a man. And he would get nine stripes with one blow. The Jews had three on theirs. And so they would strike a man 13 times to arrive at 39, which is 40 save one. Because God had told them in Deuteronomy 25, the first three verses, that they should never exceed 40 stripes. But the Jews hated the Apostle Paul so much, he was beaten by the Jews, whipped by the Jews five times, 40 less one. They gave him the most severe penalty the law allowed them to give because they hated him for preaching Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians, which has Paul's resume, says the Jews whipped me five times, 40 save one, and I was beaten with rods three times. That's eight beatings. What have you suffered to follow for the Lord Jesus Christ today? Thank you, Paul. What an apostle for the Gentiles. He's not our Savior, but he sure did bring the gospel to us deluded, idol-worshiping, pagan, darkened, blackened Gentiles. And when he had made a scourge, do you know what that takes? Time. When you take time to commit a crime, what's it called? Oh, it's sweet. Premeditated violence. I can see Jesus sitting there. I mean, you wouldn't have wanted to have a chat with him right then. <laughs> Taking a handle. It's, it's what it says. Right. Taking a handle and tying some small cords to it. A scourge often time had pieces of metal or pieces of bone tied into the thongs so that when it was flung against your back, those little pieces of metal or bone would tear your flesh more effectively, if you like the word effectively used in such a context, than just if it were cords or thongs. And when he had made a scourge of small cords off of a handle. A scourge of small cords. He made it. Premeditated violence. He needed a weapon of mass destruction to move herds, flocks, and a whole bunch of men out of the temple. And he did it. And he did it very effectively. The picture is beautiful. If you love the zeal of the Lord of hosts. The only Jesus most people know about is John 3.16. I don't know how they get to John 3.16 without reading John 2, except that I know they don't read the Bible. They just want John 3.16. So if they would just read the Bible before they get to John 3.16, they would find out that most people that believe on Jesus don't really believe on Him and aren't saved. Because that's what the last three verses of chapter 2 are going to teach us. There's a vast majority, there's a vast group of people that believe on Jesus that aren't saved. But they don't read that because they don't care. All they want is their little verse that they take out of context and corrupt and turn inside out to make it look like God loves everybody and is just trying so desperately to save everybody. 
But he's a miserable failure at it and only saves a few. Which is just, it's all wrong. And we'll deal with that verse when we get to it. But I wish they would read this verse first. That Jesus Christ took the time to make a scourge in John 2 and verse 15. The only Jesus they know is the one they've created by abuse of John 3.16. The only Jesus that the average deluded Christian can see is the satanic, effeminate caricature given to them by the Roman Catholic Church. That long-haired, John Lennon look-alike is from the Catholic Church. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible had short hair. He would never have shamed himself against the Word of God. That effeminate character that they look at as their Savior, that's not this Lord Jesus Christ. This is a carpenter's son. And he knows how to work with his hands. And he knows how to make a scourge. And he made one. This is premeditated violence. But it's not sinful violence. It's glorious violence. Because it's cleaning up the worship of God. These people should have known better. These people should have read Nehemiah chapter 13 and stayed away from such activities. How shall we repudiate our Roman Catholic conditioning? How are we going to get rid of that picture that's been burned into our heads by looking at too many of those visual perversions of Jesus? By reading the Word of God and believing what it says. Jesus sat there with fury in his eyes, making a scourge, and with sweat popping off his forehead, and veins popping on his neck and his arms, he drove the money changers, and the oxen, and the sheep, and the dove sellers out of the temple. This temple was no small building. This was a large complex of many buildings that Herod had added to the temple of Zerubbabel, the sanctuary of Zerubbabel. Does our judicial system often disappoint you when our judicial system lets criminals go? It's disappointing to read about it over and over. Let me tell you about Jesus the King right here. There should be no disappointment in Him. When He gets to church and finds things are wrong, He sits down and makes Himself a scourge and drives them out. He did not ask or suggest that they do it elsewhere. Do you notice that? He didn't walk up to them and ask or suggest that they might take their merchandising elsewhere. He built himself a scourge. He didn't pray or preach a touching sermon. He designed a scourge. Sinner, are you comfortable today living in worldly hypocrisy? Jesus is waiting for another day that's coming. And he'll have more than a scourge. But He's the Savior of all those that believe in Him and have changed lives to prove it. So humble yourself and repent with me today and lay hold of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and let's change our ways that they match His ways in every part of our lives. He poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. He drove this mess out of the temple. How did He drive them out? With begging or with whipping? How many did he drive out? Merely the fearful and weak? Or all of them? Where did he drive them? Only from the platform or pulpit? 
are all the way out. All the way out. All glory to God. Same thing that New Testament churches should do with public sinners. Consider the commotion and noise as Jesus fulfilled every descriptive word of this passage. It would have been a stampede. Stampede. On marble and granite. Stone. It would have been loud. And there's Jesus behind it. And there's those pitiful little disciples, not even apostles yet. They're just watching. Wow. Nobody with him. He did it by himself. He didn't really need any help. You know, it says he poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. I don't have time to preach to you today about Jewish tables, but Jewish banking tables have been a problem for Jews for 2,000 years. Just like it was prophesied in Psalm 69, and the tables are mentioned here, and my favorite banking family is Meyer Rothschild. Greatest banking family in the history of the world. No peers. But the Jews have been known for their banking tables and they're prophesied in Psalm 69. They're referred to right here and they're mentioned again in Romans chapter 11 where Psalm 69 is quoted because they love their merchandising, finance, banking, and currency trading. And the five sons of Meyer Rothschild took over the five banking centers of Europe two to three hundred years ago. Those banking centers were London, Paris, Naples, Vienna, and Hamburg, Germany. And they financed wars throughout European history. And uh, they financed both sides. And they paid all the soldiers in the field with their bullion. They had quite a business. But it's just, a, it's just one of history's confirmations of what the Bible says right. about this people, that their banking tables, which should have been for their welfare, became their destruction. Because what did they lose for becoming good financiers? What did they lose? the Messiah of Israel. Unbelievable trade. How could you ever... Jesus said if a man were to give up, if a man were to gain the whole world and lose his soul, he's lost. Is there a lesson that we can learn while we consider God's church in financial sin like this? The desire or pursuit of riches is very destructive to the soul. You know, you're looking at these men. They're sitting there selling oxen and sheep and doves. They're changing money. Jesus makes a scourge, drives them all out, creates a stampede, overthrows the tables, pours out their money, tells them, take these things, hence, get them out of here. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. We should remember the love of money is the root of all evil. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. Consider the example of a rich young ruler and his priorities. He wouldn't sell to follow Jesus. If you think riches don't affect you, then you need to read Proverbs 20 and verse 1 and apply it to you. Proverbs 20 and verse 1 is about wine. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Money is very weighty, powerful, and corruptive on men. Because 1 Timothy 6, 6-10 through has five verses that tell us The desire to be rich has corrupted many men. And it corrupted these men. And I just shared a banking dynasty with you that makes no mention of Jehovah or Jesus. What a loss. Even though they were to gain the whole world, which they didn't do. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. 
In the other cleansing, he will say, don't make my father's house of prayer into a den of thieves. The wording is different. Is there a lesson? Remember with me, Jesus called this building there in Jerusalem, the the second temple, the latter temple, Zerubbabel's temple, Herod's temple, whatever you want to call it, that building where men came to worship Jehovah, my father's house. Can you believe that that nation was so blessed to have Jehovah God, I am that I am, come down on earth to meet with them in a little tiny holy of holies? What a huge blessing. Where has God met with His people that He called His house? The first one was Bethel. Beth-el. El for Elohim. The Hebrew word for God. Beth, house. The house of God. It is where Jacob slept on stones and saw that vision of the angels of God ascending and descending from heaven to him. And he woke from that dream And he put those stones together and poured oil on them as a sacrifice to God and named it Bethel. This is the house of God. It's a terrifying place. And he made a vow, if you'll be with me, I'll serve you and give you a tenth of all you give me. Beautiful. It's the first house of God on earth where God revealed himself to a man in a place like that. Of course, the Bible tells us that Abraham had worshipped at similar places, but this is the first time it's called the house of God. Then Moses built him a house that was a tent. Then David set that tent in a better place, and David collected the money for a temple for God. He was going to build the Lord a house. Solomon prayed before the dedication of that beautiful, magnificent building, down on his knees with his hands stretched up to heaven, He said, the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. The heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house. And God's glory filled that house so that the presence of God was shining so brightly the priest could not minister or enter the temple of Solomon. And so God dropped fire from heaven and sucked up their sacrifices right off the altar with his own fire. It was called the house of God. God in judgment leveled that house with by Nebuchadnezzar. Zerubbabel built it back. Herod added to it. And it was called the latter house. What was he going to do in the latter house? He was going to fill it with glory the former house never had. Right. How was he going to fill the latter house, Herod's temple, Zerubbabel's temple, with greater glory than Solomon? I mean, Solomon's glory was as great as you can read about. No. The desire of all nations will come. Jesus, his son, went into that house in Jerusalem repeatedly. He was taken there when he was eight days old. He was taken there for Mary's sanctification after childbirth. He was there at 12. He was there every year at the Passover. Jesus came to that house. The last time Jesus left that house is in Matthew 23 and verse 38. The house that he had called my father's house, he now said, Behold, your house. Your house is left unto you desolate. Because we now worship in this house, and we don't mean the building. 
and he sent the Roman armies under Titus Augustus Caesar and leveled that second house. This is our house. This is the house of God. With progressive revelation, all the way from Jacob to Moses to David to Solomon to Zerubbabel to Jesus to Paul to us, with the full revelation of the Bible, this is God's house. The New Testament tells us that. Amen. This is God's house, and do you want to keep it clean? Do you love it? Do you want to be here every time it opens its doors? Do you love the stones in this house? You know, the, 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 the house in Jerusalem, the, the apostles even, at the end of the ministry of Jesus, wanted to walk around the thing and point out to Jesus the goodly stones. That's what it says in the Bible, the goodly stones. We have a chief cornerstone of this building. Right. His name? Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Do you know what the Bible says you are? Lively stones. This is a living temple. We have a building committee, but they sure aren't going to add to what we have. Sorry, sorry, committee. We don't mean any offense by that. They're not going to add to what we have because what we have is the living Lord Jesus Christ, the stone, which was set at naught of the Jewish builders, but has become the head of the corner, and you are all living stones. Are you going to polish each other up when we break right now? Are you going to encourage each other in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you going to have zeal for this house? The disciples remember that it was written in Psalm 69, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. By the grace of God they remembered, because these men did not remember anything of value. But by the grace of God they could remember things when the Lord revealed it to them, because Jesus told Peter on another occasion, flesh and blood hath not revealed this to thee, Simon, but my Father which is in heaven. What a wonderful statement. Do you compare to the Lord Jesus Christ? You confessed Him by baptism and joining our church. How fervent and passionate are you for every stone in the overall house? Can it be said you are addicted to the ministry of the saints? Like it says about the household of Stephanus in 1 Corinthians sixteen fifteen, A man was addicted in the New Testament. Addicted to the ministry of the saints. That means he loved all the living stones of the house of God. And he was around polishing them all the time. Will you help me polish every stone in this house? This is the New Testament house of God. It's better than what Jacob had, Moses had, David had, Solomon had, Zerubbabel had, Jesus had. It's better. It's the New Testament. It's the final form of worship. We're blessed to be on this side of the cross. Hath eaten me up. Jesus is here by His Spirit today. Let's not be like Capernaum, or greater judgment will be held in store for us. Let's love this place for its truth, its worship, its living stones, not the property, not the building. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.